Good to see you all again, see some uh, new faces. It's like uh, summer's over or something. I know it's the fall already. Uh, snowbirds are flying back. Uh, I don't know how that all works. Uh, it's supposed to be the other way around, but <laughs> good to see you. Good to see you. Well, I've been uh, doing a series uh, on turning points, and I want to ask you a question uh, which I do not want you to answer. I mean, this is not a difficult question. This is a question that you will know the answer to, like, straight away. I don't want you to uh, shout it out. I just want you to, like, internalize it, uh, bring it to the fore. And so the question is this. Uh, if you're a, uh, a follower of Jesus and you pray regularly, what is it that you're praying about? What is it that you're uh, asking uh, God to do uh, in your life? Uh, what is it that you find yourself continually, like, Asking God. And if you're not a believer uh, yet, uh, maybe the question would be, uh, what is it that you think would make your life better? Uh, what thing is it that's on your mind that you think, man, if I could, uh, you know, just if these circumstances changed, what would it be that would make your life better? Now just hang on to that question. We'll uh, get to it in a bit. But... Uh, I want to go back to uh, turning points. We're looking at uh, what are these uh, circumstances, events in our lives that happen that are really just profound. They, they change the direction of our lives. When we look back on them, we say, okay, this was a significant moment. Uh, I want to share a story of uh, a famous British preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he has handsome Charles. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, 1850. So in 1850, he was 15 years old, and he has this uh, significant turning point. But Charles ended up being like the greatest preacher of that era. I mean, everybody knew Charles Spurgeon. I mean, even today, uh, much of his writings and uh, many, many sermons have been uh, loved and people like him. Uh, but he, Charles's grandfather was a preacher outside of the Church of England, and Charles's father was a preacher outside of the Church of England. And Charles, as a uh, teenager, a 15-year-old kid, is facing this dilemma. Uh, just like our youth, and I, I can gladly encourage our uh, proud of our youth. Uh, you know, you guys have grown up in the church and you're used to uh, what the church is like. You've heard your parents talk about God, and uh, this was Charles's situation. And Charles is saying, but hold on a second, uh, I don't feel like I really know God. Uh, and Charles is saying, I, I want to hear and know God the way my parents talk about it. But at the same time, Charles is saying, but I realize that like, I'm not the best teenager in the world. I mean, he's got his own issues that he's dealing with. And they, uh, feeling like, he's feeling like that's preventing him from connecting with God. So anyway, one winter day, it's, it's really cold in England, and it's snowing, and, and it's Sunday, and, and Charles, being the good teenager he is, he, he's heading off to church, uh, probably to listen to his dad preach, I don't know. But uh, because it was so cold and miserable, he uh, stops at the first church that he finds on his way, and it happens to be this rinky-dinky little Methodist church. And uh, there's hardly anybody inside the church. There's just a few people. 
And to make matters worse, the, the, the pastor was actually not preaching that day. They got some other, you know, old guy that's filling in. And, uh, and Charles, like, walks in. And the guy's preaching out of Isaiah. He, he's just got, like, one verse that he's preaching on. And this is the verse. It's Isaiah 45, 22. It says this. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. Uh, that's the, the text, and uh, I, I, Charles being the great communicator that he was, I'm not going to tell the story, I'm going to read uh, Charles' account of his turning point. Uh, so uh, bear with me because it's Old English, and I'm not really good at reading, period, and reading Old English, so uh, stay with me. But Charles loved to tell his story. He says, the, uh, talking of the, the preacher, he says, he did, he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, uh, there was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking, don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just, look. Well, a man don't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and you can look. And then Charles says, and the guy like kind of rambled on for like 10 minutes, just spinning this thing out. Uh, and, and he says then, uh, finally, he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> this is not seeker sensitive preaching. This is like just. <laughs> and, and Charles says, well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. Struck me right home. He continued. And then the preacher says, And you will always be miserable. Miserable in this life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus. Look. 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 <laughs> you have nothing to do but to look and live. And then uh, Charles says, I saw at once the way to salvation. I had been waiting to do, uh, to do so. And, uh, you know, I had like 50 things going on in my mind, but all I could hear was the words look. What a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and in that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that it took, and just look at him. <laughs> you know. So there you go. There's uh, Charles' turning point, you know, just like in the most uh, ordinary, basic way, and uh, really has a, a profound experience. I mean, he, he then goes 
on for the rest of his life as a, uh, an incredible communicator. But he needed his own personal uh, encounter uh, with Christ. And uh, that's what I want us to uh, look at today is another story, uh, another biblical story. I've come up with the most inspiring sermon topic. I mean, you probably saw it. We've opened your bulletin insert. If you haven't, pull it out. You'll just see this is the, the winner of a sermon topic, the bad Samaritan. I mean, Bernadette came to me and said, Rob, can I put in inverted commas? I said, whatever you want, Bernadette, inverted commas. It's the bad Samaritan. This is the sermon topic for today. Because we all know about the good Samaritan. That's the story in Luke about, you know, the, 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 the Samaritan person that actually went out and did what others should have done help somebody in need, but the most unlikely person is the person that ends up helping everybody else and becomes the Good Samaritan. But uh, for most of you folks uh, that are familiar with the Bible, you're not familiar with the story of the bad Samaritan being termed that way. You prefer it being the lady or the woman at the well. Uh, but she was a bad Samaritan, so I'm just telling you the way it is, taking a, a, a cue from uh, Charles Spurgeon. But uh, it's a kind of a long story, so let me uh, talk through the story, tell you the story. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with it, uh, it'll resonate with you. And then I want to extract some uh, parts out of that story, which I think is relevant uh, for us. But uh, Jesus is uh, going along with his disciples, and he has to go through Samaria. Well, he actually doesn't have to go through Samaria. Uh, Samaria... For those of you that don't know, were a, a group of people that were half Jewish. They had married outside of the faith, a, a Jewish person, and so they were half Jewish. And from the Jewish standpoint, they were like a people group you don't want to mix with. They were like less than, they were outcasts, they were people that had violated uh, the Jewish commands to only marry within the faith, and you just didn't mix with them. They were Samaritans. They were like other, those people. And so Jesus, whether, uh, you know, he was like divinely inspired and knew that he was going to have a divine appointment or whether he was just going along because he wasn't uh, particularly worried about uh, tradition and what everybody else thought. But he decides he's going the shortest route. He's going through Samaria and it's the, that's the way he finds That's the day. So it's hot. Jesus is tired. Uh, he's thirsty and he's hungry and he sends his posse of disciples down to town and says, I go get someone to eat and he hangs out at the well and uh, while he's hanging out at the well, uh, a woman shows up to draw water and this creates like an awkward moment because uh, a woman shouldn't be out there in the middle of the day, it's not the right time and it's not the right thing from society standpoint to be hanging out and speaking to a woman, especially a Jewish person or a Jewish rabbi, speaking to a Samaritan and a woman, uh, wasn't the done thing. But again, Jesus uh, not being necessarily a respecter of uh, strange traditions, uh, he was a respecter of people and loved people, uh, Jesus engages this woman in a conversation. And uh, quickly in the conversation, it becomes kind of mysterious because Jesus uses the circumstance of water and thirst and changes the, sub the subject uh, to talk about spiritual things. 
The upshot of which is uh, this woman uh, is talking to Jesus about uh, water. Jesus starts a conversation and says, I would like some water. And uh, the woman is saying, well, how are you going to get it? You don't have any means to get water out the well. And uh, Jesus sort of doesn't answer a question. He kind of just moves on and says, you know, by the way, uh, you should be asking me for, for water. And uh, if you did, uh, what I'd give you is like living water. It just bubbles up. It's just nice. It doesn't go off. Uh, uh, and it's like kind of a little mysterious. And she's like, okay, so that sounds cool, but like, how would I get it? And you don't have the means. And, and then Jesus, like again, just sort of out of context, says, well, go get your husband and I'll tell you all about it. And she's like, well, that's kind of awkward because I don't have a husband. I'm living with this guy. And, and Jesus says, yeah, you've actually had a whole bunch of husbands and the guy you're with now, you, you're not living with him. I mean, you're living with him. And, and he doesn't like condemn her. He just like tells her the way it is. And in some ways she's like, you know, Wow, how, how did you know that? Uh, and then uh, the dialogue keeps going, and, and, and finally Jesus says, look, uh, I am the Messiah, the very person that we were talking about. And she's like so taken aback, she, she says, okay, well, uh, let me run back to the village. She runs back to the village, tells the whole village that, hey, come out and see this guy. Maybe he is the Messiah. Well, come check it out for yourself. And, and so that involves a whole bunch of dialogue, and uh, Jesus and his whole posse of disciples end up hanging out in Samaria. Heaven forbid, they, they spend the night there and a couple of days there just loving on these people and talking to them all about uh, who Jesus the Messiah is. Uh, that, that's the story. So this woman has this profound uh, turning point uh, with Jesus, which then ends up not only being a turning point for her, but for a whole village. Okay. That's a story. Uh, let me uh, point out some things I, I want us to take notice of. Yeah, if you've got a bulletin insert, why don't you uh, pull that out if you like following in, uh, filling in the, the blanks to stay focused. But uh, there's something that I really want you to notice here in the text uh, in, verse, in verse 10. There's three things I want you to notice here. Uh, if you're filling in the blank, it's, what was Jesus offering, and what was he not offering? What, what was Jesus offering, and what was Jesus not offering? The next thing is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And then the third thing I want you to notice all in this one text, this one verse, is how uh, she could receive what Jesus was offering. Okay, let me just uh, back up a little bit here. Verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Okay, now here's what Jesus is offering her. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You see, Jesus is saying, firstly, I want to give you a gift. The gift is free. A gift doesn't come with strings attached. Jesus says, I want to give you a gift, but you need to know who you're speaking to. 
And so she's saying, okay, you need to have awareness that this person offering this gift is no ordinary person. He's like cluing her in that this gift could be really special. And then Jesus explains to her how you and how I and how Charles Spurgeon and anybody else can receive this gift because God is still in the gift-giving business. He says, you need to ask me. And then he says, ask me and I will give you living water. Ask me and I will give you living water. Now, I want to point out what Jesus was not offering in this circumstance. Jesus does not come into town and realize, okay, they've got a water problem. And, okay, let's do a water project and let's like pipe the water down to the village so that at midday it would be really easy and convenient to have water anytime you like it. Or, hey, maybe we you know, get some engineers from the States and we go and drill a well and we put water down there. He's not offering that. Now, those are good things to do. He's also not saying, you know what? What you really need is some marriage counseling, lady. Uh, let's sit down and talk a little bit about marriage. Uh, marriage counseling is a very good thing, but that's not what Jesus is offering. Uh, he's not even offering a Bible study. He's not saying, woman, look, you got your facts kind of mixed up. Let me like do a Bible, Bible study, a good thing. But what Jesus is trying to do very quickly is saying, what you need is the best thing. You need living water. You need something that is going to help you dramatically. And what is going to help you is something totally internal. It's not about the water. It's not about the difficult circumstances or the heat. What Jesus is saying, the most important thing that you need is living water. If you get this living water, somehow or other, you will be able to be self-sustained. You will have self-contentment. You will have the courage to face your day. You will have the strength to face your day. In fact, you'll even have a joyful day despite the fact that you are a Samaritan woman living in an outpoky town where everybody knows your business, where there doesn't seem to be any way it can change, and everybody knows about your living situation, and there's no way out of that place. You can experience joy. I mean, that's, that's the point of what Jesus is offering the Samaritan woman and what he's offering you and I. That internally, if we connect with the love of Jesus, uh, we can receive a lot. Uh, that, that's the, the gist of the whole uh, story here. Now, of course, uh, Jesus kind of explains this in a little bit more detail and again, sometimes a little mystifying to us. But in verse 24... Jesus says to her, For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, again, Jesus is just like cutting to the point. It's not like, okay, do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship here in Mount Garrison or you know, any other like biblical fact or debate or argument. Jesus is saying, get to the point. The point here is you need to be able to worship the living God. And to do that, it's not about like the building or you know, whether you're on South Street or whether you should go to the other place, which is bigger and more fancy. or It, it doesn't matter. Just like you need to connect with the living God in spirit and in truth, both. And if you get that, you get everything. And then Jesus in verse 26 also says to her, hey, listen, by the way, I am the Messiah. Now, 
just a little rabbit trail here for the sake of the few folks that are doing my uh, theology class because uh, we just were looking at how Jesus can be fully human and fully divine at the same time and what are the consequences of that. And in this little chapter, uh, uh, we, we got both. In other words, the fully human side of Jesus is, is as follows. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus got tired. Those are human attributes. Gods don't get hungry. Gods don't get tired nor thirsty. Very human. But at the same time, Jesus is fully God. He knew this whole lifestyle of this woman. He knew everything about her. And not only that, he tells her, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am Jesus. I am a total God statement. Now, the consequences of that, we won't go into. All I'm trying to point out, fully human, fully God, simultaneously. Which leads into the second turning point. There's a second group of people which are dramatically impacted and have a total different turning point experience, and that's the posse of disciples hanging out with Jesus. They were aware of Jesus' humanity. They were just down to the village to go and find some food. Jesus was hungry. They come back with the food and they say, whoa, awkward moment. Jesus is hanging out with the wrong person, the wrong place, the wrong time. And they're like, Okay, they got enough like smarts to know that they shouldn't argue with Jesus. But they're kind of curious. It's like, this is weird. This is strange. But it's the fully God side that gets them. They say, okay, Jesus is onto something. This woman's responding. Uh, he knows a whole lot about it. And then when the woman's going back to the village to go and tell everybody and tell the village to come listen to Jesus, Jesus has a teaching moment with his disciples, which turns out to be a really important a turning point for the disciples. And he calls him aside and he says, listen guys, I want to tell you the secret of success or the secret of getting joy. He said, for the woman, she really needs to get living water. Living water is the focus. But you guys, you know me. You're hanging out with me. I'm trying to teach you something. I want to tell you what's going to give you great joy. This will really, really lead to great joy. And it's sowing and, and reaping. Jesus says, if you tell people about me, it'll be extremely rewarding. Uh, and he says to them, not only that, there's lots of people that other people have told about the Messiah, about me. If you like encourage them to make a commitment to follow me, in other words, harvesting, it'll be tremendously rewarding. Tremendously rewarding. See, Charles Spurgeon knew this. Charles Spurgeon knew that, you know, being a pastor, preaching, uh, you can help people physically. It was great. A whole bunch of people helped Linda move her apartment yesterday. Well done. You guys did a good job all day moving. Good things. I'm glad we a practical church which shows practical love and uh, I appreciate many of you that took your day out to help Linda move. Uh, but what Jesus is saying, and Charles Spurgeon knew, the real joy, besides helping somebody else, in practical ways. That is joy in serving. No question about it. But there's a surprising joy when you help people get connected to Jesus. I mean, you can't explain it, but it's super rewarding and fulfilling to watch somebody's life 
get transformed and know that you played a significant role in that is super rewarding. And so for those, you know, on the inside, which is many of you guys, Jesus is saying, if you want to experience a joy, practice sowing and reaping, sowing and harvesting. Uh, let me just read it to you. I'll pick it up here. In verse 34, Jesus says, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God, who sent me, and from finishing his work. So in other words, thanks for the sandwich, but that's not really the big deal here. I know I'm hungry, but there's other things to do, and they're more fulfilling than eating. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The field's already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. So, you know, for the, those on the inside, he's saying, this is, this is it. You get this part, you'll experience the joy that Jesus experienced. And then he goes on and says, you know that the saying, one plants, another harvests. And that's true. I sent you to harvest where you don't even plant. Others have already done the work. And now you will uh, get, together, get together the harvest. So, you know, you might have your own uh, turning point by exercising service, by exercising uh, the joy of helping others to connect with Jesus. Now, I had a very interesting phone call uh, from a lady from church today. I'm just seeing if she is here because I, uh, uh, I don't see her and I'm going to keep her name anonymous. Uh, suffice to say, uh, her life is in a situation that's very difficult. And it hasn't been a season of like one week of difficulty. It hasn't been a season of one month of difficulty. It's been a prolonged season of incredible difficulty. And uh, we are, are, have tried as a church to help her, and we have helped her, uh, but she's, her circumstances still haven't changed, and her situation is really difficult. So on Saturday, uh, when was it? it must have been last week, uh, she takes a, a, a drive to go see somebody, uh, and it's a fairly long drive. I mean, like, like an hour away. She gets into the parking lot, pulls in, and she hears my voice. And all she can hear in my voice is turning points. I mean, I, I don't know, that's like a nightmare, like my accent, turning points, turning points. <laughs> I don't know how that worked, but God like just, so yeah, she's, she's not thinking about me, she's not thinking about church, turning points, turning points. And the next minute, she feels like the Lord speaks to her. And the Lord says to her, turn around right now and go back home. You're looking in all the wrong places and this is not where you're going to find me. So to her credit, uh, she doesn't even go in, doesn't say to the people you're going to meet, like just turns around and goes home. Uh, comes home and, and phones me and said, Rob, look, I, I'm, I'm trying to connect with the Lord. I'm trying to ask for the Lord's help. I'm trying to seek the Lord in my life. I'm trying to ask God you know, to change the circumstances. And all I hear is your voice turning points, and the Lord say, turn around, you're looking in the wrong place. Here's the thing. At the opening of this message, I asked you to think about something that you're praying for 
that you want God to change in your life. Uh, or something that you think will make your life better. Now, I don't want to hear your answer, but I, I know from experience, from my own personal experience, that in 90% of the cases, no, like, like 95% of the time, we are praying for something external. We are praying, Lord, change that person. Lord, I need a new car. I need a job. Uh, you know, I, I need a, a spouse or a companion or fix my spouse, my companion or whatever. We're praying for something outside, like 90, maybe 99% of the time. But like in a few cases, you actually pray this way. Lord, change me. Lord, just like help me. Lord, help me to connect with you. Lord, I need your joy and I realize that somehow or other I'm the problem. Lord, can you fill me up? Can you strengthen me? Lord, I need a, like a, a large dose of your love. Lord, I, you know, my life is a mess. I'm feeling insecure. Lord, I need you. Can you like connect with me? You see, this person driving in the car, the Lord is speaking to her and saying, turn around. You're looking in the wrong place. Her prayer request is, Lord, fix everything around me. My life's a shambles. And she's saying, Lord, I'm battling to connect with her. With, you know, she's saying, I'm battling to connect with you, Jesus. And yet she clearly hears God's voice and obeys, but it's not really the message she wants. I mean, she didn't want to hear Jesus say, turn around and go home. She wanted like, Jesus, fix everything around me. So what I'm trying to say in this, it's like the woman in the well. Jesus didn't change her village. She didn't change her marriage situation. He, I don't know what, how that all unfolded. He gave her living water. He, he wants to give each one of us that hope, that love, that connection with Him that gives us that hope that sustains us no matter what our circumstances. Christianity isn't a guarantee that your life is going to be super easy and super wealthy. Christianity is a, is a guarantee that Jesus will sustain you and help you through, and your life can be extremely joyful. <laughs> Praise God. I'll, I'll end right there. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Why don't you stand and let's just worship Jesus in spirit and in truth.